Hang on a minute, I'm coming, hang on. Oh. Nearly didn't make it. There's something curious about this broadcast. This is TGP Nominal. Commence episode now. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas. Hello everybody and welcome to the second part of our TGP Nominal Stroke Garbage Pod Christmas Crossover. If you've just joined us from the first half, welcome. It's going to be a little bit different than what you've just listened to, but entertaining nonetheless. We've got some great stuff lined up for you on the show, including interviews, and towards the end of the show, we've even got a festive treat for you. Hopefully, if I turn this fader up, should be John Berger. How you doing, sir? reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service <laughs> not here is this year over yet are we almost there please tell me we're almost there i'm so sick and tired of this being march 235th <laughs> you know 236 237th if 2020 was a solid object it would be the largest stinkiest mass of cow dung ever dropped Oh, at least it'll keep the dung beetles happy. Good way to find the positive of it. It makes great fertilizer, too, I guess. But, I mean, until that time, eh. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. Right? John, you're not atheist, are you? You're agnostic, aren't you? Eh, uh, yeah. But John is the biggest Christmas fan I know. Oh, I love Christmas. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean... Christmas at its base was a pagan holiday anyway. You know, every faith kind of put their own thing on top of each other, really, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, celebrate Christmas the way you want. But yeah, the lights, the music, even the religious music, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. Favorite time of year for sure. My problem is I've got a habit of singing the wrong words. I listen to so many parodies that I do. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I will admit there are plenty of songs where the, the Weird Al Yankovic starts to come out. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, all, all I get the that. Time. I get that. <laughs> and it annoys my other half. <laughs> you ruined another song for me. There's a parody Christmas CD. It, it's kind of limited, I guess. Twisted Christmas. Bob Rivers. Yes, you do know it. Okay, good. Mm. Oh yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> Many other albums that he's brought out since, yeah. Actually, I was singing one of his. Well, I was in a I was in the supermarket yesterday, and they were playing. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, and I was in the middle of the shop singing. There's a Santa that looks a lot like Elvis. <laughs> I mean, I don't like the Twelve Days of Christmas in general. I think the song is too long and boring, except for his version. That version is awesome. Have you ever heard his? The first thing at Christmas that's such a pain to me, it's the 12 oh, Pains of Christmas. Oh, 12 Pains of Christmas, yeah, about yes. trying to put the Christmas lights and the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bringing yeah. Bringing up the lights and, and sending Christmas cards. <laughs> and um, it's the most fattening time of the year. Wreck the malls this Christmas season. Although I guess that's not going to be too much of an issue this year. Yeah. Roasting chipmunks on an open fire. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. I like anybody who does parodies. And, and that's probably sparked off one by Weird Al Yankovic yeah. and another by a group from the UK. You might need to check them out. They've been going since the 1960s. They're called the Baron Knights. 
Well, they do sound familiar. And I might have heard this stuff before. They did a version of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, which was a Christmas song. Christmas turkey, you can stuff it. Roast potatoes, sprouts and all. Who's this geezer, Father Christmas? He got stoned and lost control. And then it goes, you know where it goes? Um, hey, Santa, what? Leave that booze alone. You know, it's... Uh, nice. <laughs> drunk so much that he drove his sleigh through the wall. Weird Al has a couple of Christmas parody ones too. Yeah, my mum took it the wrong way when I played her a song called Christmas at Ground Zero because she thought it was to yes, do with yes. 9-11, but I said it's got nothing to do with yeah, that. It's got nothing to do. That song's been out long before 9-11. Okay, here's the big one. This is one of those songs you either love or hate, and I don't know if it's played over there. Do you guys have Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer? Only on these 24-hour Christmas stations. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of run out of ideas after a while, so they drag those kind of songs out. I would have been disappointed if that didn't make it over there. <laughs> <laughs> but our favourites here is the the ones that Jeff Dunham does. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which a lot of those I can't actually do on the show, but... Uh... <laughs> I mean, you can't do it anyway, because obviously, you know, certain music publishing groups would come after us for not having a licence. Uh, this is very true. And not just over here in the U.S. I know that the, the U.K. has their own that tend to be a little snotty about those sorts of things. Oh, I'll tell you one of those. One of our uh, honorary crew members, Will Chung from the uh, Twice Brewed Observatory, he does these moon nights where he goes out and he talks about the moon while showing the moon through his telescope. Mm -hmm. And he got one of his videos blocked on Facebook. On what grounds? Apparently Sony didn't like it for some reason. Did he have a Sony song in it? No. He was just talking in a car park about the moon. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking... this is what's wrong with automated filters going through and flagging things. I couldn't work out why it got blocked. They don't need a reason. They just have their robots go through and... <sighs> Whatever. <laughs> it's so bizarre. <laughs> Yeah. If we haven't got the right kind of licensing, we can't play stuff. Sometimes they follow a little bit too closely to the letter of the law and not the spirit. You know, I've noticed that with a few YouTubers. You know these guys that do these reaction videos? Yep. And they've had um, certain videos blocked. You have to be careful with, with YouTube because you get striked. Yep. Uh, three strikes and you get your channel deleted. Uh-huh. You approach the actual record companies themselves or the television companies themselves and they're quite nice about things it's just the fact that youtube is very automated yeah oh yeah very much so oh well yeah but anyway yeah christmas love it love it. i even i miss it the first time it came around so a long time listener like episode one listener of the widescreen podcast he and i've been friends for years he contacted me and said, hey, this is available now. I was like, ooh, okay, bought. It's the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack, but it's on green vinyl. Oh, wow. I knew it came out like a year or two ago, and I missed it. Apparently, they've reissued it, or they've done more publishings, or whatever. I got it now. You see, that's a strange thing. The Charlie Brown Christmas things are not as big over here as they are in the States. That is like a tradition over here. Apple bought the rights to it. And it was only going to be streamed on Apple Plus instead of on the normal broadcast channels. People went ballistic 
That's a tradition over here. I mean, for decades it was on CBS, and then I guess they lost the rights or sold the rights, whatever it worked. But some broadcaster always showed it over here, and it was on an over-the-air channel. Whether it was ABC, I think it went to ABC afterward. But you could get it without having to buy cable because it was always an over-the-air channel. And then Apple's like, oh, yeah, we got it now, so you have to have an Apple Plus subscription. Bad move. Then all of a sudden they're like, you don't need a subscription. We'll make it available for everyone. And still people are like, "Uh uh-uh. That's not the same as watching it on the, you know, on our TV and so forth. So finally, PBS said, we got you covered. We'll show it. Yeah, you don't mess with Charlie Brown over here when it comes to especially the Christmas one and Halloween. Eh, the Thanksgiving one's okay. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and Charlie Brown Christmas. You, you don't mess with those. Charlie Brown was big probably here in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. These days, not so much. Because I know there was a a Charlie Brown movie made not too long ago. Yeah. Didn't do very well over here at all. See, I loved it because there was so much in there that you would only catch if you have the the comics memorized. And I mean, like, from the 60s and 70s. All these little bits that they threw in, there was like, I know what they're referring to. I enjoyed that one. That was a good one. I was worried how they were going to do it. But it was a Peanuts movie. It was absolutely a Charlie Brown movie. It was a comics and movie form. I loved it. I think we should take a break there. And it's not going to be our usual kind of break because on the Christmas crossover, we always play in some messages from supporters of the podcast over the years. So listen out for those. And when we come back, we're going to have a guest. TGP listeners, this is Casper Van Dien. Welcome to the Roughnecks and Merry Christmas. So I'm Joe from the Joe Q Car Show and from Just Cool Enough. I'm wishing you a happy holidays and a happy new year. Good luck, have fun, and enjoy. This is TGP Nominal. Joining me on the line, I have Damien Carruthers. Now, that name might be familiar with you if you are a regular listener to The Garbage Pod because Damien actually featured in a previous episode. How are you doing, Damien? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Because you were on the um, Save Our Stations podcast. Yeah, we did that during the summer, I think. Yeah, uh, towards the end of August. The reason why you've come on the show is that you've got a project that you're working on. Yes. And it ties in quite nicely with TGP Nominal because TGP Nominal is all about space and science fiction and stuff. Tell us about this project that you're working on. It is a children's space adventure book. It's called The Cheese Miner on the Moon. And premise of the book is that we live in a world where we mine cheese on the moon. And that's run by a giant corporation who send spaceships up to the moon. They mine the cheese on there and send it back down to Earth to sell the cheese which is kind of a metaphor for, you know, the big oil companies on planet Earth who are devouring planet Earth piece by piece and taking all its natural resources. And the book does carry that strong metaphor that we can't continue as a species to consume in the way we're consuming without consequence. It just feels like we haven't learned our lessons from planet Earth and we're looking to go up to the moon now, mess with that and and kind of drain the moon's resources. And, you know, as we all know, the moon controls the tides here on Earth and kind of have to wonder if that is going to play any havoc 
with planet Earth, to what degree will they mine the moon and what effects will that have? I'm not talking over the next year or two years, but you know, in 10 years, 20 years or 30 years, is it going to affect planet Earth in any way? So whilst being kind of this awesome space adventure and it's got action in it, great storyline, great characters, it does carry that message on climate change as well. So it's educational whilst being fun. So what made you come up with an audiobook that was orientated with music? I was at my friend's house, they have children, was telling the children about the moon and it kind of popped into my head on the spot to tell them the moon was made of cheese and that it's mine and that's where all the cheese comes from on planet Earth and the cheese that's in their fridge actually came from the moon and I went really into detail with this story and a light bulb went off in my head at the time and I kind of thought that would make a really cool book and it took me five years of planning it in my mind and writing bits down and developing characters and getting that done and obviously you know i'm in a band as well called serenade the stars you know you can tell i've got a bit of an obsession with space and the moon and the universe so it kind of made sense to me to make the audiobook acted out with music and sound effects and and everything else because audiobooks tend to be really dull and, and this is aimed at children so you need to make that exciting and as far as I'm aware, there's nothing like this. It's the first of its kind. I'm sure it won't carry on being the only one of its kind once people start to hear it. You'll see a lot of other authors do the same thing. But as far as I'm aware at the moment, it's the only thing out there like it, which is really exciting. I just can't wait to get that final hardback copy and audiobook released to the general public, which should be in February next year. It was due on the 21st of December, but the second lockdown has kind of delayed that quite substantially. So we're now looking at February 2021 for the release. There was a time, we're talking from the 70s, 80s and 90s, there used to be these set of books called Read Along Adventures, Yeah, which is a similar thing. They were based around the movies, made into a book and a cassette at the time and evolved into CDs, obviously. But when I was a kid, I used to read or listen to a lot of these and they were so cool. The first one I actually got, I had it on vinyl. Yeah. And it was The Empire Strikes Back. That's amazing. I bet that'll be worth some money now if you still had it. And it used to start off with... This is the story of The Empire Strikes Back. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page... When you hear R2-D2 beep like this. Let's begin now. Some of them were done by the actual actors from the movies. One of them was The Goonies. Chunk from The Goonies actually read the story. (laughs) Yeah, so it's something they used to do. And then obviously when videos came out, that got pushed to the side a little bit more. And even though the books had pictures and you were listening to it you were still using your imagination yeah whereas if you're watching something you're not using your imagination it's the director's view of the story yeah when you told me about this i was quite excited about it because it took me right back to when i was a kid listening to these books yeah it does help you develop your imagination i grew up reading a lot of books and they do leave a lot to the imagination from what the characters look like to the settings and in other world these characters inhabit and you're right you when you're watching a film it's the director's interpretation of these characters but with a book you can kind of lose yourself inside your own mind with it and it's it almost becomes personal to you you know no one is going to have that same experience that you have with the book it's your own unique experience 
you kind of don't get that with films, do you? Hopefully, through reading this book and leaving a little bit to the imagination, it will help kids develop their imagination. You know, perhaps they'll go on to write or pick up an instrument or play music or something along those lines. You've got a, an awesome illustrator. Yeah, Jade is incredible. And the thing about her, she's done such a good job on the artwork. She is registered as severely sight impaired, so technically blind. She uses an iPad to do all her designs. She works relentlessly on it. She's had a lot of health problems this year. She's been in and out of hospital, but she just got her head down and, and didn't complain and, and got everything finished. And her talent is amazing. Her attitude has been brilliant with it and her persistence of having all these problems but just not complaining and getting on with it is inspirational, you know, and a lot of people could take a leaf out of her book and, you know, follow her lead with it and kind of not complain so much and and just get on with it and do stuff because she's had it harder than so many people I know and she hasn't let it get to her. She's just done everything she was supposed to do and done an amazing job at doing it. And um I can't wait to get to work on the next book, the sequel to this, with her because we've learned so much from the first one. I know the second one's going to be a lot better and a lot more streamlined. And um, I'm excited to see what illustration she comes up with for the next one. That's in the um, in the plans then to come up with a second book. The plan is for a trilogy, as you know. Um, everything that's a trilogy usually ends up amazing. <laughs> kind of basing that from my love of Star Wars. You look at Star Wars. Originally, that was a trilogy. There's a lot of good things that are trilogies. I think three is kind of a special number. And that is the plan with The Cheesemonger on the Moon. There are going to be three books. There may be spin-offs, but with that set of characters and that particular storyline, it will be a trilogy. So tell us about some of the characters, if you're able to. The main character is a guy called Nash. And I based Nash on the fictional person that I would have loved to have been. I grew up in a little village called Snettisham. I mentioned Snettisham in the book, it's where the character grew up. He grew up wanting to be a pilot and fly into space, which is what I wanted to do. And Nash lives in a universe where that's all possible for him. And um, he goes on this amazing space adventure. And I'm kind of living out a childhood fantasy through the book with this character. So he's, he's your kind of main character. We've got another guy called Walter James, who is... I don't want to say like your Donald Trump kind of character. He owns the mining company that mined Moo Cheese. Very rich, has a lot of money, and he is kind of your oil company baron, taking everything he can. He doesn't care about the damage it does. He just cares about making money. You know, there's others I can't really talk about other characters without giving too much away. But um, there's a lot of character development going, and you do see them grow from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, which is really cool, and I hope um, sends a message out there as well. You've very kindly sent us a clip from the book. Yes. So lead us into that. So the clip I have sent is actually the opening of the book. It's the first thing you'll hear with the audio book. The reason for that, if I included too much dialogue, it would give away a major spoiler in the book, which I don't want to do. I want that to come as a surprise. So whilst it may not be the most exciting part of the book, I want to leave that element of surprise within the book, which is why you've got the first part of the book. And it gives you uh, an idea of how it will work and how it will sound and kind of sets up the story. Hi, my name is Nash, and I'm so excited that you have signed up to join me on this amazing adventure. So strap yourselves in and get ready for Blaster. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 
One. Chapter One. Nash is a cheese miner, not just any ordinary cheese miner. He's the best cheese miner on the moon. Every day, Nash wakes up in the morning and spends the next eight hours mining the best cheese the moon has to offer. To find the most delicious cheese on the moon, you have to go all the way to the dark side of the moon. Nash knows where all the best places to mine cheese is, and he always brings back the very best cheese. Where would be the best place to get hold of the book? So we wanted to keep it kind of very niche and avoid the main retailers like Amazon and kind of all the big shops. So at the moment, it's available strictly from the book's website. So if you Google the cheese miner on the moon, the first thing that will come up is the website for the book. You can go on that website. Click the order button. The book is nine ninety nine, and that's for the hardback. If you want the audio book, I think it's about four pounds, and there is an ebook version as well, which I think is about four pounds. Just go directly onto the website. The book will be out towards the end of Feb, and that's when you'll be getting your deliveries of the book. So not only can you own an amazing children's adventure book, which carries a strong metaphor for climate change, you're also supporting an independent. Author, and it will help create the next book as well. So the funds we get from that book are going to go towards creating the next book and kind of soaking up some of the costs from the first book. So please do have a look at the website and get your order in. The first one thousand copies are limited edition books. They will all be numbered and signed. So it's kind of a, a piece of history you're getting there as well. It's going to be very unique, and we're only doing that with the first one thousand copies. Everything after that will be standard edition. This day and age, where everything seems to be owned by big corporations, yeah, the little independent people need a voice, and that's where podcasts like myself come into it because that's what we want to do: supporting and promoting stuff that you probably wouldn't hear about. Yeah, your input to the show is going to be our output, and hopefully, you're going to get some sales from it. I hope so. I mean, we're denying ourselves so many works of art by not supporting these independent artists and buying from the bigger chains. You know, put your money into independent authors because one of those books that you buy, or one of those pieces of music or films that you buy, are going to be an absolute work of art. You know, and、um, continue to support that and put your money into independent creatives. Let's say, then、uh, it encourages that, and you know, find you get something quite special. Absolutely. Another piece of audio that you've sent us is the the theme tune to the book. Yeah, it's called "Land on Our Own Moon" by my band, which is Serenade the Stars. It's kind of based on the idea that I grew up loving movies. I, I still do love movies. I watch films nonstop. And going back to the '80s, which was when I was a kid, movies had great soundtracks back then. They'd often come with a theme song, and that song would be huge, and you associate that song with the film. And I wanted to do the same thing with the book and the audio book, is to have a theme song for that, which I've tried to make as kind of catchy and child-friendly as possible, and hopefully we've achieved that. But that kind of goes back towards making the audio book as related to a film as I could get it without actually being a film. You know, I'd love to do a film one day, some kind of animation with the book, but at the moment it's a book and an audio book, and it's heavily influenced by. Films I grew up watching. Eyes up, eyes up, and to the stars we'll fly. Away from here, we'll disappear from sight. Let's leave this town and follow the sky in 
Spotify and iTunes and Amazon and basically everywhere you can stream music online you'll find us so Damien it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show talking about this project because as I say I am pretty excited about this <laughs> so am I I can't wait I'll be sure to send you a copy <laughs> in the post that'll be so cool three things definitely caught my attention I mean it, it's great that he's doing that another play on the whole moon is made of cheese but as soon as he said that I had no choice. I was forced to look over to the right side of my desk and look at my Wallace and Gromit alarm clock. (laughs) As soon as he was talking about the moon and cheese, I was like, okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) Cracking cheese, Gromit. Cracking (laughs) cheese. I had to. That was just impulsive. That song is my kind of jam. I thought it might be. That was just straight up pop rock. Loved it. Serenade the Stars I'm a really good group actually towards the end of the show we're going to be playing another track that Damien has sent us but not from Serenade the Stars it's from his new band and he sent it to me today which is awesome Uh, you are aware that that Empire Strikes Back read-along book I've got it and it's the original from 1980 on a 7-inch record I still have it as well yeah you still have it too? yeah (laughs) I was wondering where you got the audio from it. Actually, if you go on to Google and look up Read Along Adventures, there is a website dedicated to the old books, and they've even made them into these things where you can turn the page 
oh, and it geez. plays each page as you turn it. As long as they don't get hit with any kind of copyright violation. I mean, there's no money to be lost on it, for sure. And I have some that the guy, well, I'm assuming it's a he, that they haven't got. I'm going to contact them and see if they're interested in the ones that I've got. Because I've got ones that are not just read-along adventures. I have got one which I love, and I play it to death. It's the story of Gremlins, read by Tom Baker. Gremlins is in the movie? Yep. Read by Tom Baker, and it's Tom Baker. Why? Yeah, I don't know. I think he loved the movie. No, oh, maybe, maybe. Tom Baker is such a good storyteller. But even when the old man was out of sight, he could still hear the Mogwai's gentle <laughs> chirping, floating towards him on the cool night breeze. Because <laughs> he's got such a a rich yeah. voice. The weird thing is, some of the ones that I have shouldn't be really made into kids' audiobooks. V. The Story of the Visitors. The Rainbow Theater presents Rambo. First Blood, Part 2. Neither of which are really kid-friendly intellectual properties. Although saying that, they were kids' action figures, Rambo action figures. Yeah, that's true, but still not the kind of movie that you'd let them go and see. And um, B wasn't exactly the kind of TV show you'd let them watch. No, that is for sure. It was on late night here. I don't know if it was in, in the States. Yeah. I was going through some of my CDs yesterday, and I forgot. I've got. It's not the original soundtrack. It's Never Ended Story 3. I have the God, I forgot there was a three to that. Oh. After two, I was like, nope, we're done. The third one, I think, was made for the German market more because the soundtrack seems to be made f- for a German audience. It was not That's German possible. artists, but it was um, sort of an electronic dance music version of Lamal's never-ending story yeah. theme. I think Marky Mark was on it before he was Mark Wahlberg. As everyone knew him, he was Marky Mark. It's funny that you say that it was made for the German market because I'm looking at the cast list. It's all Americans and Brits. All right. I can't even remember it being released over here. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much it was made for, but apparently it only made $5 million at the German box office. Ouch. That's not a lot. The film has no connection to the source material of the book beyond usage of the characters from it. The second one probably didn't either, now that I think about it. Well, you know, nothing to do with the original source material. Oh, you mean like the uh, or the Rise of Skywalker? That one? <laughs> they are making up for it now, though. Mandalorian. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Filoni and Favreau, my God. They, they get it. They understand. They know what Star Wars is. The Mandalorian is what Firefly was. It's just that, you know, Mandalorian managed to get a second season. Mm-hmm. Jerks. <laughs> Actually, uh, who's making the next Star Wars movie? It's um, Taika Waititi. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, he has he, done one of the episodes of Mandalorian, hasn't he? He did. did, did one he, in the he first did season. did the finale from the first season. Yeah. So he's another one who gets it. So I'm actually kind of excited to see what he's going to do with it. But uh, Filoni and Favreau, they get it. Yeah, it, it really is well produced. Even when you look at the artwork, I know it was Doug Chang who did a lot of the artwork, who has done a lot of the artwork from the prequels as well. I mean, that's when he was brought into Lucasfilm for the prequels, and he's 
you know, I think he's in charge of the art department for Lucasfilm now. Um, you, you can't believe that it's a TV show. It's yeah. that good. Yeah, it is. I don't like talking about it too much because obviously there's still episodes that people haven't seen. and uh, Sure, sure. And there's a lot of uh, spoilers involved with that show. I try to be careful with that too. I understand people don't like it. I don't understand that though. Oh my god, you just spoiled it for me. For me, my brain says, really? Now I'm interested to see how that happened. I'm waiting to see if a certain character that we both love actually makes it into this season or next season. <laughs> character that we love? Yeah. Um, you can say the character, and hoping that a character gets in there doesn't mean they will. All I'm going to say to you is Timothy Zahn. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but who knows what role that's going to come into play. I don't think that role is going to be as big as we might think it is. Clearly, we already have the antagonist, you know, for this show right now. Mm. He was established in the last season. We can Um, mention him. I mean, Moth Gideon we're talking about there. You know, and there's enough intrigue with that guy. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Considering those books weren't going to be part of the proper canon, and now there seems to be characters popping up left, right, and center from those books. Well, it's kind of funny that when you look at what The Mandalorian is doing, a lot of those things that were eventually disregarded as canon are now working their way back into canon. Oh, yeah. And they're not really rewriting them either. No. That's the interesting part. It's like, yeah, it's not canon anymore. You know what? We're going to make them canon again, thank you. And that the soundtrack to it is just... Oh, oh. the soundtrack. It's a Western. It is a space Western, mm-hmm. and it's a properly done space Western. Obviously, in certain episodes, they've included the samurai part of it as well, which is another oh, yeah. aspect that George Lucas always loved. Yeah, those, those Kurosawa references. Yeah. Absolutely. And the best part is, what I really like that they're doing is that they're focusing on the story. They're not focusing on the time. Mm-hmm. This episode is 43 minutes. Okay, good. This episode is 40 minutes. This episode is 48 minutes. This last one was a half hour. But look how they, much they put in that yeah, one episode. They didn't need to pad it. They said, this is all we need for this episode, so we're going to distill it down to the essentials, and it worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, finales, you get like a double episode, but you always do in a lot of shows, don't you? You get a, a double episode for the finale. But... Yeah. Uh, we were moaning about it at first because you had Disney Plus in November of last year uh-huh. and we didn't get it until April of this year so we had Mandalorian in April this year so we didn't have to wait so long for the second season <laughs> yeah so now that it's established over there was it day and date as it was for here? Fridays yeah okay uh, cool and now there seems to be other shows that they want to bring into the fold as well because you've got the Kenobi one coming out yeah I mean, they were saying, oh, why isn't there a Boba Fett one? Why why would you need a Boba Fett series when there's already one called The Mandalorian? Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, that's kind of weird. That'd, that'd be duplication of effort, it seems. Yeah, it includes all manner of different uh, characters for that genre. So it works. I think this is where Disney are probably going to go more with the Star Wars franchise. I think they will be doing more TV shows than they will be movies. And you know what? I'm fine with that. There's no issue with that. Have you been watching uh, Discovery? I'm a bit behind with it. Okay. <laughs> the, but it, yes, I have. It's like the other Star Trek seasons, they seem to have found their footing in the third season. Mm-hmm. The newer stories are actually pretty damn good. I mean, I've been pretty impressed with it from the word go, to be honest with you. It, it was a different take. I know some people had yeah. problems with it. 
because it wasn't as wholesome as some of the other... Uh... It doesn't need to be. But in fairness, too, that makes it more realistic. Have you been watching any of the other Star Trek stuff? I mean, have, have you seen Picard? Yeah, we've seen Picard. Have you seen um, Lower Decks? I have not yet actually watched them. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> I mean, it, it looks like Star Trek meets Animaniacs kind of thing. I think it's a little bit like Futurama in many respects. Okay, that's fair enough. But, um, oh, it is so good. And it's not afraid to take the, the Mickey out of itself. <laughs> There's certain things in the Star Trek universe that it's like, you know, why do we do this? I don't know. Yeah, and I don't blame them. It's like, why not? What really do they have to lose? Mm -hmm. Give it a season, see how people take to it. I was belly laughing at some of the stuff in it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I hope it does get a second season. It's the same with Star Wars with some of the animated uh, bits and pieces. I know Star Wars Resistance got some stick. I liked it. It wasn't made for an adult audience. It was made for a younger audience. Mm -hmm. And that's what people have to remember. But the characters were really good. Yeah. And it did kind of pad out and fill some of the gaps that were in the sequels. That's why there were so many holes in the sequels, because they are going to be filled by other things that they can make money on. Nah, the problem with the sequels was that they had no plan. They had nothing to go on. It's just like, yeah, do whatever Star Wars movie you want. Oh, new director, yeah, do whatever Star Wars movie you want. Oh, yeah, new director, oh, back to J.J., yeah, do whatever movie you want. It, it seemed to be written by a committee rather than, right, okay, we've got somebody who knows what they're talking about. We know they embraced Star Wars at its heart and go with it. I mean, a lot of people slated Solo. And I loved that I movie. Lo I thought that was a good movie. I don't understand the hatred for it. I honestly don't. I have seen every single Star Wars movie theatrically, because I'm an old fart. And I, the only only reason why I went to see Solo was because I was like, <sighs> I've seen all of the others theatrically. I might as well see this one, too, just to keep going on that. Went in with no expectations of enjoying it at all. And I walked out of that movie theater thinking, that movie was a damn good movie. It was. It was well-paced, lots of action. The characters were actually good, you know, and... Uh, oh, God, I forgot his name. The guy who played Lando. Oh, um... Donald Glover. Donald Glover, yeah. Freaking nailed it. He was Billy D. Williams' younger form. Mm -hmm. He absolutely nailed that character. And I was actually impressed by it. The part about the way he met up with Chewie was a little bit... Ugh. Okay, that's not exactly how I would have expected it to happen. And the whole thing with parsecs, I will give Ron Howard credit. He did the best that he could with a word that was clearly being improperly used. Okay, I'll let that slide. The movie itself was a good movie. And it had a lot of Easter eggs in there that I thought were really clever. There was lots of bits and pieces you could pick up. Every time I watched it, there seemed to be something yeah. new that I missed. Considering the fact that the trouble that that movie has had when they were oh, making it. Oh, so it. much. Oh. And Ron Howard, I think he did an amazing job. The fact that I actually walked out of that movie saying, I like that movie, that caught me completely by surprise. It's definitely, out of the new movies, it's my second favorite. Oh, yeah. Because Rogue One takes some beating. Rogue One is so good. I really liked Rogue One. And obviously I'm proud of that movie because obviously Gareth Edwards is, is a British director, so... <laughs> it's... That doesn't mean anything. The Star Wars movies are all British films anyway because they were mostly filmed in Pinewood. Yeah, yeah. 
there's a documentary movie actually it's called Elstree 76 and it's all about the making of Star Wars at the Elstree Studios they talk with Dave Prowse there's a story right there unfortunately yeah you're right it was Elstree I thought it was Pine I know that a lot of movies are done at Pinewood too I think a lot of them work in conjunction with each other to be honest they probably do I can't remember what it's called now but a friend of mine did a documentary about Elstree Studios his dad was one of the big wigs at uh, Elstree before they'd taken on Star Wars and Elstree was um, going under and um, they took a punt with this strange sci-fi movie that everyone was saying <laughs> wasn't going to work. God, that was a massive punt, and it worked. <laughs> it's funny that you say that you know, it wasn't going to work or anything, because I remember reading an interview with uh, Sir Alec Guinness. He's like, the script is absolute rubbish, but this movie is going to be huge. <laughs> He hated the movie, but he knew it was going to make money. And the thing is, when he came back to do the, the roles again in in the other movies, he loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. And I think it was because it was more like a family. I'm sure it was. This is the one thing I love about Star Wars, is that everything was documented. Everything. Yeah. Everything. And a lot of the stuff from other movies, it's either been thrown away or just lost. Yeah. And this is why the extras on the discs are amazing to watch, because there's so much that they're still bringing out now. Things they found in archives, and mm -hmm. it's just amazing how much is kept. Oh, yeah. I spoke to a guy at one of the conventions I went to, a guy called Ted Weston. And he was one of the prop masters for the studios at that time, Elstree and Pinewood, actually. And he's got so much memorabilia. When I say memorabilia, I mean like call sheets. Oh, sure. That kind of stuff. I said to Ted, I said, you should put this stuff in a book because people would lap this stuff up. It's amazing. And he told me so many different things, but he didn't want to be on record for it because of the fact that he's getting a bit forgetful about things. Yeah. And he's worried that he wouldn't come across all that well because he'd have to keep stopping and saying, you know, what, what was I saying? You know, that kind of thing. I said to him, I, I'm not worried about that because that kind of stuff I can easily edit out. But yeah. He, he didn't really want to be on microphone, so that was oh well, unfortunate. But I had such a great time talking with him. Now, obviously, this year Field of Force Day hasn't been able to happen. We're not a hundred percent sure how the rules and regulations are going to be for next year, considering the fact that Field of Force Day is based around people who are vulnerable and have immune system problems as well. So we'd rather not take the risk. So Field of Force Day both the Aylesbury one and the Peterborough one are on hold until 2022. Completely understandable. The Aylesbury event will be in the late spring of 2022 and the Peterborough one will be in the late summer, early autumn. So that's all we can tell you at the moment. It does mean we can work on things and possibly make them better than we originally wanted to do. Just watch this space. It will happen, but when... We're not 100% sure. Earlier in the year, there was a meeting or a virtual meeting with Aylesbury Town Council and Simon from Field of Force Day. I was trying desperately to get back for that meeting, but I was halfway up a motorway when the meeting <laughs> took place. 
so I wasn't able to attend but Ruth Mayhew from the Ausbury Town Council wanted me to know exactly what was going on because she considered the Ausbury event to be my baby. Yeah. She called a meeting with me personally the very next day. We met up and she explained exactly what was going on. So I'm happy with the way things were handled and roll on 2022 for Field of Force Day. So we're going to take another break and when we come back... We've got another interview. Happy holidays to all the listeners of TGP Nominal. This is Richard Garriott. I'm an honorary crew member. I'm uh, an astronaut. I flew on uh, Soyuz TMA-13 to the ISS in 2008. Some of you video game players may know me also as Lord British, uh, working on my newest game, Shroud of the Avatar. You know, as we are wrapping up one more trip around the sun, I know that many may lament getting one year older, but I must say that I am particularly excited about the current state of space science and technology uh, while we are... Uh, in a new golden era of space exploration, of human space exploration, where costs are coming down, access frequency is increasing, which means safety will also be increasing. And I, for one, I'm very bullish on my own ability to get back into space, which also comes along with the fact that I believe all of us will have an easier time uh, fulfilling our own dreams in uh, space beyond the Earth and maybe even on another planet. So here's to seeing you in the near future in space. Happy holidays. Hello, this is Chris Lintar, and I want to say Merry Christmas to all the TGP nominal listeners out there. We are, by nature, explorers. The same curiosity that sends us to the stars and the speed of thought urges us to go there in reality. And whenever we make a great new leap, we elevate humanity, bring people and nations together, usher in new discoveries. And new technologies. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Be curious. I've recently caught up with Lindsay and Paul Smith and their eight-year-old son, Aston, after they were brought to my attention by UK Astronomy. Aston is autistic and has ADHD, and like a lot of kids of his age, loves space. But Aston has taken that love of space to another level. Have a listen to this. What got you interested in space? I started looking up at the stars, and when I was young, I didn't know what they were. I thought they were just blank parts in the sky. And then I found some space videos on YouTube and I was like, God, this is amazing me. And what would you say is the thing that amazes you about space the most? The thing that amazes me is that we are the only known species of life and 
we haven't found any other species and we are so, so incredibly small compared to the grand scheme of the universe. That's true. Have you heard of a man called Carl Sagan? No. He was an astrophysicist and he had this to say about that very same thing. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. If you look him up on YouTube, there'll be some really interesting things. He was a really amazing man. So you decided to write a book. Yes. I started typing on my computer to start off all the facts and the words. I drew my own pictures and also through my tiny telescope, I was able to get this picture of Jupiter and this picture of Saturn. And you managed to get that picture of Saturn with the little telescope? Yes, but my dad used his phone to zoom it in. And another thing, I think the lens on the end of my telescope is about six centimetres. I'd say the length, about 15, 23 centimetres. And the lens where I look through with my eyes, I'd say it's about 10 millimetres. That's quite small to come up with something quite detailed like that. That's really good. And it's not even meant to look at the stars, is it? It's my old grandpa's bird-watching telescope. It's surprising what you can find with smaller equipment. Um, I don't know if you can see these. My uh, binoculars have got a, a magnification of 10, and they've got a 50mm lens. These are quite basic, but these are really good for looking out there. I think I have very, very similar binoculars, but my binoculars have a small compass on it. All right, so you know where to look. Yeah, and also I can change the direction of the compass on it using magnets because the Earth is basically a giant magnet because the mantle in the Earth's core is spinning around, which creates a magnetic field. and. Also, the Earth rotating creates its magnetic field. That's right. Lindsay and Paul went on to tell me a little bit more about how Aston's book called The Solar System came about. During lockdown, wasn't it? He was bored and Paul said to him, you know, why don't you put down all the facts that you know? You know loads about space. Why don't you, you write it down? So he started typing it out and it then sort of became a, oh, well, why don't you write a book? So initially his motivation was really, really high. He was on it all the time, which was really unusual for Aston because he doesn't really focus on much for a long period of time. But with this, he was really focused. He put the thoughts down that were in his head. They had no 
structure to them. They're all over the place, which is sort of the way his brain is, isn't it? It doesn't flow naturally. Obviously, if he's going to put something down in a book, you wanted to check that what he was writing down was accurate. So obviously he had to check what he'd written. So he was doing his fact checking. And then he wanted to draw pictures. So he didn't want the book just all photos and things like that. So he drew the planets, the asteroid belt, Mars, you know, Earth and the moon. And they were fantastic. It's also got some pictures that he got through his telescope. Paul's a graphic designer, so it just seems to make sense really for Paul to do the layout of the book. And it just became what it is. And we initially just thought, we'll get 30 printed, you know, because my mum and dad will want one, his grandmas will want one, you know, all of that. But I put something on Facebook on my own page and it, it kind of snowballed. And then we had to order another 30, then it was another 50, then it was 100, then it was 200. And we just can't keep it in stock which we never anticipated. We've had a waiting list of about 120 people and the books arrived this morning. So we're doing another 120 orders to get out and we're blown away. We're, we're absolutely blown away by it. And we're so proud of him that he's been able to do it. I'm, I'm completely new to this and I hadn't even thought of all the astronomy side of things when I was trying to sell the book for Aston. The astronomy community have been absolutely incredible. Um, it, his book's gone international. Um, you know, we've made sales in, in USA, Switzerland, Ireland, and that's because of the astronomy community. They've been sharing it, they've been posting about it. Uh, it's, it's just been phenomenal, the response. And when Aston got a big lump of money uh, and we told him, you know, this is how much money you've made, he, he literally could not speak and that, I've never seen Aston speechless. He, he had to go and hide in a, in a dark room for a few minutes, seriously, because he was just overwhelmed. He, he never expected it would be this big. And we've loved as parents just watching his enthusiasm and, and the, the people telling him, you know, he's, he's brilliant. And, and it's we've just seen him grow in confidence. It's been lovely. And is this the first thing that he's really latched onto and gone with? He's loved space from about a year or two years old. There's a picture of him in his book, and he must be four there. Yeah. Um, looking up through his granddad's telescope, and that's all the equipment that he's got. It's just a bird-watching telescope that his granddad gave him, and he's just utilised that. And it's been fantastic for looking at the moon and uh, Saturn and Jupiter, but um, he's just got a little bit frustrated that he can't see any more of the deep sky uh, objects. We've had people offering to buy him a telescope, we've had people offering to do crowdfunding, um, just amazing. blown away, blown Absolutely away. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. All the facts and figures that Aston talks about during this chat are straight out of what he calls his space-based brain. They're not written down, he's not reading them, and I was completely blown away by Aston's knowledge at such a young age. What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be an astronaut and a astrophysicist. Do you like physics then? Yes. There's a bit in your book about physics. Do you want to read that bit that you like about physics? I love the laws of physics right now because without it, my chair will float around and I wouldn't be able to keep it down on the ground. Even if I put a trillion tons of weight on it because there would be no gravity. That's brilliant. What is your favourite thing to look at in the sky? I'd say the Andromeda Galaxy, which when I look straight up through my small grandpa's bird-watching telescope, I can see a small, very faint smudge 
And when I look on my pad into this app called Star Chart that shows you all the stars and the galaxies, I see the Andromeda Galaxy. I've asked for Christmas to get a more powerful telescope so that I can get more detail on the Andromeda Galaxy. Oh, wow. That would be good, wouldn't it? Yep. See what Santa brings you. Now, the Andromeda Galaxy is our nearest neighbour as a galaxy, and that's quite a long way away. It's approximately 2.7 million light years away. And to think that it's that far away, but it's still quite close, and there are thousands, of, if not millions, of other galaxies out there. So there may be another planet like ours somewhere. I think that would be amazing if we can find another source of life. They are looking. NASA and ESA have sent out probes to, to find them. We've just got to wait and see. Yeah. Is it just the planets and stars that you're interested in, or are you interested in the rockets and things as well? I'm interested in everything I know about space and everything that I can see. What about um, like all the probes, space probes, that have been sent up by NASA and by yeah. Russia? Because you've had New Horizons, which yeah. is the one that got the closest to Pluto that any other spacecraft has seen. Now, that was amazing because everyone thought that Pluto was just a dead planet. Then they realised that it's got so many different things on there, the mountain ranges, there's ice areas. So it's not a dead planet. It, it's, it's amazing. I know that it's over 4 billion kilometres away and also it would take light about 8 hours to come from the sun to Pluto and back. Yeah, it's quite a long way from the sun, isn't it? What's it made of? Well, Pluto is mostly made of rock, ice and it might be made of silica, iron, copper, nickel, xenon, cobalt. Carbon, neon. There's a lot on there then. Yeah, probably. And is it round? It is pretty round. And that's the thing. Most things in the cosmos are spherical or round, but there are yeah. the odd one or two things that are very odd shaped, like comets and asteroids and things. Do you know why their things are round? Because their gravity in the centre is pulling in from all sides. That gives it a spherical shape. But if it doesn't have enough mass, which means it doesn't have enough gravity, it won't be spherical. We had a little visitor last year, year before, which was like cigar-shaped um, that flew through. And they, they said it was the first object that was from outside of our solar system that had actually come into our solar system. Momo. That's it. And that's Hawaiian, I believe. It was a Hawaiian name. Yep. Do you know anything else that's got a Hawaiian name? Maki Maki. What is Maki Maki? Maki Maki is another dwarf planet like Pluto that was delisted and people used to call it the 13th planet. And it has a very, very odd orbit. They're saying that we're going back to the moon. How excited are you for that? <laughs> really excited. I do know in Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were there. Neil Armstrong was the first person in the world to step on the moon. That's right. And there was one other member of that team. Do you know his name? Well, his first name was Michael. That's right. Michael Collins. 
that's it, Michael Collins. And he became the loneliest man because everybody else that he knew was either on Earth or on the moon. And he was floating around on his own. Was he just stuck in orbit? Yeah, uh, he was stuck in the lunar orbit. Yeah. And then when the lander lifted off from the moon's surface, he joined back with them so that they had enough fuel to take them back to Earth again. So if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have been able to get back to Earth. So he was a very important part of that mission, even though he yeah. didn't actually step on the moon. So he was just chilling up there waiting for Buzz and Neil to get off the moon. Yeah, just like this. <laughs> they did a, an experiment on the moon. Uh, I think it was on Apollo 15. Yes, I think I know the experiment you're going to say. So they did a sledgehammer and a feather at the same time and they both landed at the same time. Yeah, exactly the same time. And it was something very special about that feather because in America, one of their symbols of america is the eagle and that was an eagle's feather that they used to to represent that experiment that's very american that is isn't it eagle's feather i didn't know didn't know that if you were going to space and you're going up there for a couple of months what favorite thing of yours would you try and sneak up there uno uno game uno <laughs> and my dog scooby the dog yes <laughs> it's a bit big to sneak in this in your suit though well we could get rid of stuff that we don't need so that then there would be just the perfect amount of weight do you know the largest star that we ever know of which one would that be i want you to take a guess serious no i'll tell you it's stevenson 2-18 and the old largest star that we ever knew of was UY Scuti, which was 7.97 astronomical units in diameter. But Stevenson 2-18 is 10 astronomical units in diameter. Stevenson 2-18 is made of hydrogen, helium, sulfur, nickel, mm-hmm. copper, and iron at its core. Really? It's believed to be at the end of its life. And the same with our sun, when it gets to the end of its life, in the core, our sun will start to burn heavier elements like nickel, copper and iron. So it's a bit like, depends how you want to pronounce it, Betelgeist or Betelgeuse. Belgeese. <laughs> so many ways of saying that, but each of them are right. That's coming to the end of its life and it's getting interesting for astronomers because when that goes into supernova it's going to be amazing to see it might be in your lifetime you might be able to see it it's going to explode in the next one million years like this other star called eta carina but it's way way further away and betelgeuse's explosion or supernova will probably be visible in the daytime and may last for a month really yep that would be so awesome it would be do you want to tell mark then so you've talked a lot about planets in here what is your favorite planet and why except for us except for Earth, because we love earth don't we but... well my favorite planet in the solar system except for earth is jupiter because it holds the most records for a planet in our solar system okay first of all it has the largest storm it has the most moons it has the largest moon, it's the largest planet, it has the most pressure on its surface, and 
it's the fastest planet to be able to condense certain elements into diamonds because of the immense 73.1 Earth atmospheric pressure. Wow. It has the most active moon in the solar system and its largest storm is called the Great Red Spot. And also, it has the largest moon, which is Ganymede. It just holds lots of records. It pretty much takes all the records off of every planet. What's it made of? It's made of the same gases that the sun is made of. And the sun is mostly made of hydrogen, helium, a little bit of iron, nickel, and cobalt. And then we get xenon. Then we get carbon dioxide, oxygen, and methane. And it's a really interesting planet to look at, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's completely always swirling. Every, all the gases are all swirling around. And with the the red spots, which it, it almost moves individually from the rest of it. Did you see that Aston had an email from the European Space Agency? Yes, I did. Made his day, didn't it, darling? Yeah. I showed all my classmates too. <clears throat> what did they say? I loved it. That's awesome. I was cheeky. I asked her if she could get the book to Tim Peake, but she said she's not allowed to use her position to get access to the astronauts. <laughs> Aston has sold over 500 copies of his solar system book, and with some of the proceeds, he wanted to support UK Astronomy with a donation to the charity. When UK Astronomy founder Ross Hockham heard that Aston was appearing on the show, he wanted to surprise Aston by sending him a little message. Hi, Aston. Ross from UK Astronomy here. Fantastic work, man. I just had to say that. I read your book. I got it. Brilliant work. Really enjoyed it. You should be so proud, and I know your mum's proud of you as well. And also, I just want to say thank you so much for your donation to UK Astronomy. It means so much to us. As you know, we go out and teach schools and teach people, and kids especially, all about astronomy. So the work you've done is just awesome and really inspiring. So keep it up, man. Keep it up, and I hope to see you in the future. How cool was that? Really good. That's oh, lovely. Oh, bless him. Because you've done something really special by writing this book. Yes. We want to send you something that is really special. Now this... Look at that, Aston. Yes. ...is one of our space mission patches for our podcast. These only get given to special people. If we can get a photograph of you with it, and then you can join all these special people on our website. Yes. That's awesome. What did you say? I said it's amazing. Say a bit louder so you can hear. I say amazing. <laughs> Thanks. What is the best way of getting hold of Aston's book? You can go to www.astonsmith.me.uk and there's a link on there for the book. Aston's also on the Go Stargazing website. His book is suggested as a nice Christmas gift. First Light Optics Limited um, have also listed it on their site and they'll stock it and ship it as well. So guys, it's absolutely fantastic having you all on the show with us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolutely wonderful experience. Thank you for inviting us on. It's something that we wanted to promote because it's not every day you come across someone at such a young age that's written a book, especially about space. We're going to try and get his thoughts onto pages again, see if we can get another book. Um, he seems to love it. You were brilliant with him. Um, Aston, you can say goodbye to Mark. Bye, Mark. Take care, Aston. Have a good Christmas. You too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Brilliant. Wow. 
that's a fountain of knowledge right there. He it, knew his stuff. He's amazing, isn't he? That's incredible. I was a bit worried that I was going to be made to look stupid. Oh, dude, don't open yourself up to comment like that. <laughs> You're just going to make it too easy for me. <laughs> Good for him on that book. Good for him. Yeah, as I say, it's, it's well over 500 copies now, and um, it's difficult for, for us to take in, so I can't even imagine what it's like for Aston to try and take it in. Oh, yeah. But that, I mean, what is there to say? <laughs> that's that, Seriously, with that, wow. We will put, as always, in the show notes, details of how to get hold of Aston's book, and I think you will really enjoy it. It's really well set out. I said to Lindsay, Aston's mum, about how I thought it was set out like one of those DK books. You know, like you get the Star Wars visual dictionaries and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The company that makes those, they also make planetary books and stuff like that. And uh, I, I thought it represented one of those. It was that well done. More power to them. Have you seen in the news about these monoliths that have been appearing all over the place? Yeah, yeah. Someone's having fun. <laughs> the first one was in Utah, wasn't it? Yep, been there for a while. Yeah, so I've heard, because it's been on Google Earth, I suppose you can call it, for a little while. And then there was the one in California, and then there was one in Romania, and now there's yeah. one in the UK. Yep. I'm thinking it's going to be around the Alum Bay area, because it seemed to be very cliffy. Someone's having fun. That's okay. Yeah, it's the same as the crop circles, isn't it? But I just keep going back to, you know, 2001. Oh, I'm sure that's what everybody thought of. <laughs> just make sure there are no bones scattered around where people start killing each other. Yeah, and some mad, crazed computer system we, we do not need. <laughs> oh, you mean Facebook? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> we have a term here called budge where that won't budge, it won't move. We have that over here. And I said that kind of loudly, and the next thing, Google Assistant came on and said, I found a few budget car rental locations near you. I didn't even ask you for anything. That's a bit freaky. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. The only thing about those monoliths is they they can't be cheap to make. So who's doing this? Uh, It's got to be an artist, isn't it? It's gotta be, but I mean, in the middle of the of the Utah desert, okay, I kind of get that one, just because of the landscape and the surreal nature of it. Uh, Romania, and isn't it on like a beach in the UK? Yeah, it's like a beach. I don't know. This is gonna be like Banksy, I think. Gonna see these monoliths popping up all over, but who is doing this? I don't think it's Banksy. It's not his kind of. No, no, no. Thing. I'm just saying it's gonna be something like that. But whoever is doing it is gonna keep the real name shrouded in mystery and stuff like that. But it gets people talking, and you can't get it any does. can't get any better publicity than that, really. <laughs> this is what I do. What you yeah. make a solid piece of metal in the middle of nowhere. That's <laughs> that's your call sign, is it? Whatever makes them happy. Yeah. <laughs> if you pull it out of the ground, it's probably got your signature underneath. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this article just came out a few hours ago. Apparently, NASA has now named the 18 astronauts who are going to be going on the various Artemis missions. Wow. Nine of them are men, nine of them are women. Are there names that we know already, or are they the new class? It looks like it's a mix of that. Nine of them are new class, nine of them are veterans. In fact, two of them are right now on board the ISS. So that's going to be Glover, I would imagine. Yep. He's Glover's one, and so is Kate Rubens. All right, cool. So, let's see, there's... 
Joel Acaba, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. 306 Days in Space. Kayla Barron, uh, she's a new one. Mm -hmm. Raja Shari, also new. Matthew Dominic, new. Victor Glover, currently on board the ISS. Woody Hoberg, new one. Johnny Kim. Christina, is it Koch or Cock? It's actually Cook. Cook? Okay. Christina <laughs> Cook, 328 Days in Space. Kiel Lindgren? It's spelled K-J-E-L-L. That's the problem with reading. You don't get pronunciation from reading. No. So my apologies on that one. Uh, 141 Days in Space. Nicole Mann, new one. Anne McLean, 204 Days in Space. Jessica Meyer, 205 Days in Space. Jasmine Mogbelli. Hope I got that right. She's new. Kate Rubens, already talked about her. Frank Rubio's new. Scott Tingle, 168 Days in Space. Jessica Watkins, new. And Stephanie Wilson, 43 Days in Space. They are the ones who have been chosen out of the 47 candidates to fly the various Artemis missions. We obviously, because you got eight men, eight women, the very first mission back to the moon will have a woman astronaut on it. Mm -hmm. As I keep saying, first woman, next man. You betcha. And whilst we're on the topic of space... Oh, it helps us what the whole podcast is about. But it's not all of what it's about. Well, not about. all, but... You know, <laughs> we haven't done a sci-fi one in a long time. No, we haven't. We'll have to do a proper sci-fi one again. Um, but whilst we're on the topic of space, earlier this evening, we witnessed something pretty special. The Starship, the longest flight that it's done. So it, it flew 25 kilometers into the air, and then it belly flops. The engines came back on, it came down vertical, and it nearly made it. Almost. Almost. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, but it exploded. Yeah, but look what they've learned from that. It and almost made it, too. You could see right at the very end, the one engine went green. It's like, mm, is it supposed to do that? Actually, I found the tweet that he posted shortly afterwards. It says that fuel header tank pressure was low during landing burn, causing touchdown velocity to be high and RUD not sure what RUD is, but we got all the data we need. Congrats, SpaceX team. Hell yeah. So he seems pleased. <laughs> I mean, again, I think he's at the point now where he, especially for these, he kind of expects failure of something. They got all the data they want. They know what the issue was. Okay, so now they're going to go and fix it and try again. But look how quickly it takes them to find the problem. Yeah. I mean, that's not even half an hour they were talking about what they need to do to go forward. I'm sure they're getting so much data back anymore, especially for these experimental systems. They probably knew as it was happening, uh-oh, tank pressure is low, wait a minute. But it was, you know, it was a, a gnat's wing away from being... It was. <sighs> it was really close. That is kind of weird, though, to see a belly flop like that. Yeah, it was weird, and it was so slow coming down. That's probably the reason for the belly flop. Yeah. Wind resistance. But I think they had the wind against them at that point as well, which didn't help. Yeah, I think they're they're really close now to um, building something that's going to work first time. Yeah. And that's the way SpaceX works. It's They have a formula that really does work. Well, that's the way that science works. You experiment, you make mistakes, you learn from the mistakes, and you try again. Not always, but... <laughs> it, well, it, no, but I mean, in general, <laughs> it's space, and space is hard. Yep, that seems to be one of our mantras on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast. I you know there are a lot of people out there that think, oh, how hard can it be? And you just think, you don't know. I mean, you not, have no idea. Yeah, but you do it so many times, it must be just routine. No. 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 <laughs> There's always something unexpected. Space. The final frontier. 
final because it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that. Start taking it all for granted. The suits, the ships, the little bubbles of safety as they protect us from the void. But the void is always waiting. That's very true. For some reason, I wanted to make a never-ending story reference, but that wasn't the void. That was the nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Right. Going to take another short break, and we've got another interview. Merry Christmas to everybody on TGP Nominal from Gareth Jones on Speed. Back at the Justice League, Wonder Woman defends the reputations of Mark Taylor and John Berger of TGP Nominal. Batman, you've got it all wrong. Mark Taylor is not the man you're looking for. We still don't know much about him. Obviously, he's a time-traveling warlord. He's littered the streets with buildings he's stolen from other time periods. What have you been smoking, Batman? Mark's not a warlord. He's the host of TGP Nominal. Hawkwoman, can you please talk some sense into Batman? He's lost it. He's not a warlord. At least he wasn't at first. When we chased him to the Old West, all he was stealing was historical trinkets. What? No, 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 no. You've got Mark mixed up with some DC villain. He's causing severe damage to the space-time continuum. Uh, the degradation is increasing exponentially. Are you hearing me? When we were in the Old West, I got a good look at his time belt. Mark doesn't wear a time belt. I've written a program that should disable it. If we can get close enough to upload it. Now see here, Bruce. Mark is much too busy doing a show to be messing around with the space-time continuum. If we can get our hands on the belt, maybe we can stop any of this from ever happening in the first place. Okay, that's it. Look, I'm gonna tell you one last time. Mark is the host of TGP Nominal. They talk space, technology, sci-fi, comic books, gaming, gadgets. It's a podcast. In other words, he's not the guy you're looking for. Okay, I've saved the day once again. Can we now move on, please, and finish baking the Christmas cookies? Hi, Mark. This is Laura LaRue wishing you, John Berger, and everybody listening to your great show, TGP Nominal, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, It is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it, this is TGP normal. Nominal. Damn. So joining me on the line, I have Dan Pye from the Kilder Observatory. How are you doing, Dan? Very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, bearing up, as as people say. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. So tell me a little bit about the observatory. So the observatory is one of only two dark sky observatories in the country. We're based in the Northumberland National Park. It's an international dark sky park, just two miles up a dirt track outside of what is pretty much the most remote village in England. We're two miles up a dirt track in the middle of the forest outside of that. Um, And that's where we've, we've chosen to put our beautiful wooden box 
It's constructed entirely out of wood, the building, um, and it kind of looms out of the out of the hillside. It's on these wonderful stilts, like a pier raised up out of the forest. It's supposed to symbolise a, a ship that's sailing off into the night. That was its original architectural vision, if you like. So it's a really quirky, really different, really interesting-looking building. It's very different to a lot of other observatories that you might see because we don't have white hemispherical domes. Instead, we've got these square turrets that we hide our telescopes inside of. And inside each of the two turrets that we have, both of them at the moment have 16-inch aperture telescopes. We used to have a 20-inch in one of those rooms, but it was on a Dobsonian mount, and it was just huge, so you'd have to use ladders to get, <laughs> to get up to the eyepiece. So we've, we've stopped using that instead we've gone with a 16-inch Richie Cressian uh, that we've got in that room now. We've been there since 2008 and we've grown a huge amount. We started as a small group of, of amateur astronomers who, who founded the observatory, who took the vision forward to create a public outreach observatory in the National Park, just like every other, I guess, astronomical society across the country. But these guys had a beautiful building, big telescopes under the darkest skies. And since then, we did a couple of events per month. So nowadays, we do seven nights a week operation and multiple events per day. We run events from any time in the afternoon through till two and three o'clock in the morning. The majority of what we do is public outreach at the observatory. Then aside from that, we also have a huge school programme that goes into every school across the North of Tyne district, where targeters go into every school across the North of Tyne over the next couple of years. A couple of years ago, we went into schools across the Tees Valley, um, and we're usually in there four to five days a week when there's no COVID restrictions, but nowadays we're delivering everything online. We've been developing an online system that will help us take the Kielder experience beyond the observatory because we're quite aware of the fact that people would come to the observatory, they would go home, and then that would be it. Um, we had no way of, of maintaining contact other than obviously through social media and, and, and we had no way of being able to continue that relationship, to nurture that relationship, to go on and, and maybe seek a career in astronomy or, or, or whatever that might be. Um, so we're now working on a platform that enables us to do that and that mixed with the new augmented reality app that we'll be launching as well should hopefully do that for us. That sounds interesting. Um, and then more recently, we've started construction of a new telescope, oh, wow. which is very exciting for us because it's a, it's a different style of astronomy to what we're used to. Of course, a lot of what we do is optical-based astronomy. It's looking through the eyepiece, taking images of whatever we're looking at with our kit that we have. Uh, whereas this is a radio telescope. It's a five-metre radio dish that we're building on-site at the observatory as part of the Tanlaw Array. Uh, it's funded by the, the Tanlaw Foundation. And Lord Tanlaw, what he really wants to achieve is he, he wants to do some research on the sun and some other bits and pieces, which it'll be used for as well. It'll be used as a project which Durham University in particular can tap into and use for their research, but also one that we can use for public outreach as well. Schools across the country will eventually have access to it to be able to collect their own data, if you like, and then we'll teach them how to how to reduce that data into something easy to understand for them. Wow, sort of a mini Jodrell Bank. Yeah, yeah, tiny, <laughs> tiny little baby Jodrell Bank. <laughs> so. so that sounds really cool, especially 
getting the kids involved with the processing of, of the data and everything. We're definitely going to have some budding astrophysicists. Yeah, I would hope so, yeah. Um, and that's really what we aim to do, is we aim to deliver this Kielder moment, as we call it, the Kielder moment which inspires people to go on and seek careers in astronomy or physics or relevant subjects and or just carry it on as a hobby. You know, if they leave the observatory and they start to contribute to Zooniverse data, great. If they leave the observatory and they start taking beautiful astrophotography, amazing. If they leave the observatory and they just want to share the night sky with their local community, that's also an incredible thing as well. That's the things that we really strive to inspire people to do. So what's your role at the observatory? Um, So I'm one of the science presenters and also visitor experience lead and site maintenance. So I guess it's my job to make sure that everybody has good time when they come to the observatory. The quality of events that we run, the structure of the events that we run, the interaction from the minute you experience the observatory taking you right out the back end and into the continual development of that experience leading on from that as well. And then making sure that the building doesn't fall down the hillside. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a likelihood of that? Officially, I would say no. But there is some days, there's occasional days when it gets so windy that I think the next day I'm going to turn up and it's going to be like a bobsled down the hill and it's uh, <laughs> we find it at the bottom. <laughs> because as you say, it is a very unusual building. The first time I saw it, I actually thought it was a bird hide. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing, but on a huge scale in comparison. But it is an amazing looking building. It is, yeah. It's, it's incredible. And we've got two buildings now. I don't know if you've seen it recently, but um, in 2018, we built a, a second building next door to the main building, which is called the Gillian Dickinson Astro Imaging Academy. As opposed to the turrets on the main building, this one has a completely retractable roof, so we can take the roof all the way back, uh, and then we have the zenith above us, which we can image. The other telescopes in the other observatories, we tend to just get people's eye up to the eyepiece, get them looking through the telescope. That's really what we believe in, is, is getting an eye to an eyepiece. Whereas the other side of it, the Gillian Dickinson Astro Imaging Academy, that has cameras affixed to the back of each of the telescopes. So we've got attic CCD cameras that are affixed to the back of those. And in there, we've got a four-inch Takahashi with a two-inch Takahashi guide. And then we've got a 10-inch Rich Cretian by TS Optics and a 14-inch Rich Cretian by TS Optics with a five-inch Skywatcher guide. And they're incredible rigs. One has a monochrome attic CCD attached to the back of it, and the other one has a one-shot colour CCD attached to the back of it. And then the 10-inch RC we tend to use with a DSLR attached to the back of that one as well. To be honest, because a lot of what we do is is very much public outreach and delivering events, it leaves us really limited time in order to be able to really get into those uh, those telescopes and really produce some incredible images. But we produced some amazing images for just the short amount of time that we've spent taking the images have produced incredible results. And so the next six months, we've got a plan in place, which is going to help us alleviate a little bit more time for people to be able to actually access that kit and do the stuff that we want to do with it, the really good stuff that we want to do with it. And we have some specialists helping us out with that as well. Does the University of Durham have a big collaboration with you? Two of our trustees are members of staff at the university. We've got Dr. Jürgen Schmoll, who's a world-renowned instrument scientist. We have Dr. Nigel Metcalf as well, who who pretty much, I think, created much of the software-based systems that the university runs off and is part of the physics department. So we've got those two guys who are trustees, but we also have a really good, strong relationship with the physics department in general, particularly with the deliverance of the Tanlor Telescope 
we've got a, a relationship which is strengthening much more in that respect, working with regards to the research that we can help them with as well. Somebody asked me the question, how did you get involved in astronomy, Dan? When did you start your passion? And I think I was about eight years old and, uh, and I wrote a little book. <laughs> I'm sure it's nothing compared to this chap's book, but it was a little tiny book that I wrote for, uh, for a project for school and I still have it. Interestingly, starts with the very first page, says um, space, the final front ear, and then a picture of an ear. <laughs> and then it talks about constellations and how to find North Star and stuff like that. So, yeah. That, that's excellent. Do you sometimes just look back on that and think, you know, this is, this is what sparked it for me? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I guess so. The, the first time that I really remember having any kind of interaction with astronomy whatsoever was when I was around that age. I'm sure I was probably interested in it prior to that, but it was around that age where I became um, more engaged in it in the time that I can remember the most. Um, because I went to the observatory where I lived in Pontefract. I, I grew up in, in Pontefract in West Yorkshire, and there was an observatory there which was run by the West Yorkshire Astronomical Society. And um, my mum took me to an event. Luckily, it was a clear night, would you believe? <laughs> I got to see the moon and I got to see Mars as well. I remember very limited amounts of my childhood, but I really distinctively remember that particular moment, seeing the moon and, and seeing Mars. I just remember Mars as this tiny little fuzzy blob, but nevertheless, that was amazing to me at the time. And that's the earliest that I can remember being really enthused by astronomy. And that year at school, I think year five and year six now is when they start to teach astronomy as part of the curriculum. Mm. And so that project really helped write in that little book. And then we had to craft uh, a sculpture of, of a particular object to do with space and I constructed the Hubble Space Telescope out of long, long, really long tubes <laughs> and it was only recently I think that my mum chucked it away because it was looking a bit tight in fact she might actually still have it uh, <laughs> to be honest she tends to hoard a lot of stuff like that from my childhood that is not the only thing that you're involving because I know you are you've got your your fingers in quite a few pies as the games might be. <laughs> living up to the name I like your business cards the slice of pie business cards oh yeah I think that was genius <laughs> I really do <laughs> because you're a voiceover artist as well aren't you yeah that's right I've been a voiceover artist for quite some time now I guess it was the voice work, the voiceover artistry, if you like, or the voice acting. It, it was always my dream career. It was always the thing that I wanted to do. Ever since I can remember, that was the thing that I wanted to do most with my life, was to be a voice actor. Um, and on leaving school, I went and studied media studies, and then I went and studied theatre at university, and I dropped out of theatre. And um, I continued working in a community radio station when I was 18, I joined the board of directors for a community radio station that was establishing in Newcastle called Any1FM. It's a small community radio station that was becoming a full-time community radio station at the time. So myself, along with a number of others, helped push that along onto its full-time license. And then a few years later, I walked away from that. And I walked into commercial radio, but not in commercial radio in the sense of front of house. I was doing commercial production and commercial script writing and commercial sales as well. And I did that both full time and freelance for a couple of years until I opened a cafe, which I know you visited. I visited the cafe, yes. But still, I, I was doing freelance stuff in the background and it was always very a passive thing that I did. It wasn't a, a great deal of effort. I kind of really 
exerted on it. And I guess that came from some disheartenment, for whatever a better word. Very early on in my career, I must have been around 22, I think my station director at the time turned to me and he said, Dan, just give up on the voiceover stuff. You're never going to get anywhere. And the commercial producer at the time, the, the head of commercial production said, you're too nasal for this. You'll never get anywhere in it. It was brutal. And that wounded me. I was like, all right, I'm clearly not made out for it. So I'll sweep that under the carpet for a while. After we'd opened the cafe, we started running small Comic-Con-styled events in the northeast, And they were going very well. We were running one in Durham, which consecutively sold out. And then me, in my infinite madness, thought, well, if we're selling out at this rate, let's make something really big. And so I booked the Stadium of Light. My complete mismanagement, and I put my hands up to this event entirely, um, my mismanagement, my miscalculation, my desire to, to grow too big too quickly really damaged the success of that event and that was the last event that we ran however there is a silver lining to that event (laughs) not only did i learn a lot but one of the guests was charles martinet who voices super mario and luigi and all of those characters associated with the mario saga as well as numerous other video games that he has under his belt I got to spend quite a lot of time with Charles while he was here. He said, well, why did you give up on a dream? Why would a setback like that let you give up on a dream or allow you to give up on a dream? Why did you allow yourself to do that? And I didn't really have an answer to that, to be honest. Everything inside me pointed towards the fact that despite what other people tell you, you should continually fight to achieve a goal. And so I thought, you know what? Yeah, he's right. Maybe I shouldn't give up on that. And it was almost his endorsement, his, Dan, you can do this in a Mario voice. (laughs) (laughs) That that got me to, to reignite that spark. And so I went and bought a microphone and I started to reach out to different producers that I knew from working in radio. And it kind of led from there to today, really. It's gradually ticking along quite nicely, I guess. I've done some things which I'm immensely proud of, but I would still say, by the way, that I am very much at the beginning of my career. This is me still as an infant voice actor. And to be perfectly honest, I think that's the attitude that I'll always kind of adopt anyway, is that I still have so much to learn. I always feel like a baby in whatever I do, that I'm learning things every single day and discovering new things every single day. But I've had the great privilege to be a continuity announcer on Channel 4. I'm one of the national voices of Asda in store. I've done national adverts for HMRC, for Tesco's, for Barclays Premier League, for Dell, for the BBC. Uh, And the list kind of is reasonably expansive, I guess. So I've done some amazing things. And I hope to do some more amazing things soon as well. And next year, my very first video game uh, comes out under an EA Origins brand, Zoink. They're releasing a game called Lost in Random, in which I play a number of characters. That's really cool. I've always wanted to play as myself. <laughs> <laughs> During the COVID lockdown, the first lockdown, it caught quite a few people out. So people living round London, they'd never set up at home before. They'd had no reason to, because you could just get on the tube, go into London, record your bit and get out again. Whereas like for us who live much further away from London, we've had to work from the spaces that we have and invest the money in in building these spaces, these professional recording facilities in our own homes and stuff like that. So then it became almost an opportunity for us to score a little bit more work, which was quite nice. Whereas now a lot of the studios are opening again. We mentioned earlier that I'd visited your cafe. It was probably about 2017, I think it was. 
I was actually based at a, a guest house, literally a stone's throw from the cafe. I was at the um, the Pancake Cafe guest house, which is yeah, literally right across the road, a hundred yards, if that, away from the cafe. So I thought, well, I have to visit whilst I was there. It was a bit of a a blow, wasn't it, when that uh, had to close? Yeah, it was. Just to really explain the ethos of the cafe, um, it seemed very appropriate to name it Dark Matter Cafe as a result of the importance and significance of Dark Matter to Durham. But also the whole ethos was to really tie a community together. And that, to me, was what Dark Matter is, is this missing ingredient in the universe that brings everything together. So it seemed an appropriate name to use. And that's what we wanted to achieve with the cafe. What we wanted to achieve was we wanted to get people out of their bedrooms, bring them to an environment where they felt comfortable and that they could socialise with other people away from the screen of their Xbox or PlayStation and what have you. And I really wanted to focus on people who had maybe social difficulties, autism, Asperger's, that kind of ilk I really wanted to focus my attention on being a place where people with social anxieties could come and connect with other people. I think we did a very good job of it. Yeah. Um, and I'm not one for banging my own drum. In fact, I hate it. I shy away from But I think with Dark Matter, we've certainly achieved that in great quantities. We saw people who were unable to look at somebody in the eye to then go and run events at the cafe for trading card games or video games. Um, we employed people who were very socially awkward and then, be, then flourished into these incredible communicators. We brought people into the cafe who were really in a dark place, in a really isolating time of their lives and connected them with like-minded individuals to really bring them out of their shelf, make them feel comfortable. And, and to me, the biggest heartbreak of all of the dark matter scenario was having to make the decision to close the doors and take that away from them. It was absolutely the right thing to do, and I'll stick by that today. But at the time, it was the emotional connection to that which made it the most difficult because we were flooded with a myriad of letters from people in support of what we did and sad about us closing. And some of the letters were particularly hard to read. People who had um, difficulties so much so that they were in such a dark place at the time when they came to the cafe that they were considering taking their own lives. But then coming to the cafe made them realise that they weren't on their own, that they had other people around them who would support them and, and thought like them and showed them some positivity in their life, which was able to, to almost like, I don't want to say save their life, but almost like bring them back to a sense of modest reality. That, for me, was one of the most difficult things about closing Dark Matter Cafe. But like I say, it was absolutely the right thing to do. My only regret in it all is that I feel like I've lost touch with that community and I haven't continued to support that community. And I'd love to think that there was a way to be able to do that. But the nature of operation around the Durham area is, is incredibly complex, incredibly difficult. Um, and my pockets just went deep enough. <laughs> Where's the ending point, I guess? So Fantastic place. And, and you, you did some great work there. And I'm glad I actually got to visit it, to be honest, because... It felt a great place to be in. I think we were quite fortunate in the very early days to get a good community of kids who would come and regularly visit and support the organisation and support what we did. And they started to really connect with each other. And then you saw this tree of, of stuff start to take place and this whole community started to come together. And it was just, it was a phenomenal thing to witness over a longer period of time. 
And I guess a lot of that comes with making that environment a very special place for them and making them feel onerous over that environment. So what we did with theming of the place was to make it as immersive as possible for them, to try and and take them away from the realities of life into this Aladdin's cave, if you like, of stuff where they could feel comfortable surrounded by things that they were familiar with and that they loved and that they had passion for. Um, And I think that really helped. Because if you'd have taken that and just stripped away all of the theming, I think it possibly would have been a different scenario. But to make it that themed environment, I think really helped with the connections that people were making with each other. Now, because of what you achieved there and the fact that you'd been on the show before and now what you're doing with the communities through Kilda, I wanted to induct you as one of our honorary crew members. Oh, that's very nice of you. I'm going to do this virtually, but I'm also going to send it to you. What we do for our honorary crew members is we present you with one of our mission patches. Oh, wow. That's incredible. I love that. And all we ask in return is when you receive it, Mm. if you could take a photograph of yourself with it yeah so that we can put you on our honorary crew member wall absolutely yeah that's amazing i i love a patch you know um i have a bag which is absolutely covered in patches um i've got a complete patch obsession (laughs) i always wanted to have my own mission patch yeah and making the podcast i thought you know what this is missing a mission patch absolutely (laughs) so there they are amazing that's incredible That would be great if you would be one of our uh, honorary crew members. Of course, I would be honoured. Thank you. So, Dan, it's been absolutely fabulous having you on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to talk to you. It's always nice to talk about about things that I've done throughout my career. (laughs) I don't get asked that often, so it's always really nice. Would you be willing to come back on the show sometime so we can talk uh, a little bit more about astronomy and stuff? Absolutely. Anytime, I'm always here, whenever you need me. As it is the Christmas show, I'd like to wish you Merry Christmas and uh, a Happy New Year. Yeah, and to you too. To just take something like that and build a community, that you can't just go and do that. You know, it takes a special kind of person to be able to do that. And because he's done that and he's been involved with the Comic-Cons, I think I really need to talk with him about things to do with Field of Force Day, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely bring him on board for that. Because of what he's done, I mean, to help people out like that and then to go on to the astronomy at the observatory and his voiceover work as well, I thought, yeah, he deserves to be one of our honorary crew members. Yeah, well, no problem with that at all. You do love handing those out, dude. I haven't had a chance this year. (laughs) Hello, science lovers. It's Steph Evs of The Stimulus. I hope you and your loved ones have a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Hi there, it's Ross from UK Astronomy. Just wanted to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, a happy new year, and hopefully a new year of clear skies. Hi, this is Zach Allegan, and you're listening to the TGP Podcast. Merry Christmas, everybody. So we're coming to the end of the show. As it's the Christmas show, I thought what we need is a little bit of cheer. So Damien Carruthers came back on the show to tell us about a little festive project that he's been working on. So while Serenade the Stars is still active, 
I have a kind of side project called Rain, and I've wanted to do a Christmas song for so long and never got round to doing it. And I kind of decided this year with the lockdown and everything going on, I had a bit more time, I'd go out and make the Christmas song. So I think there's going to be so many songs that are focusing on COVID or the lockdown, or it's going to be COVID-themed Christmas. We wanted to do something that took people away from that and reminded them of, you know, the magic of Christmas and what Christmas is about and had that traditional Christmas feel. And this is what we have produced, <laughs> which you're about to hear. It's that time of year Fairy tale of New York is on repeat Naughty Elf is waiting on the shelf Sipping man is still such a treat Love ones together rain with the best thing about christmas is you you heard it here first folks absolutely amazing track and thanks to damien for letting us use it tonight it does really make you feel christmasy and i thought that's the perfect way to finish off the show nice so thanks again damien and hope to speak to you in the new year 
Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, John. Sir. It's the end of the show. It's the end of the year. Oh, thank you. <laughs> for the end of the year, not necessarily the end of the show. Definitely. <laughs> thank you for the end of the year. Oh, man. I'd like to thank everybody who sent in messages for the show and to everyone who has supported the show over the years. There's a lot of you out there, so I can't name everybody. Um, I'd also like to thank everybody that has been involved in this TGP Nominal Garbage Pod crossover. That's everybody from the Garbage Pod section, so that's everybody that's been involved with the Not the Live in the Park virtual festival. And then everybody who's been involved with the TGP Nominal side of it, so... Obviously, Damien Carruthers for letting us use the music from both of his bands to talk about the book. Aston, Lindsay and Paul Smith to come on and and talk with us because Aston is just so amazing. And to Dan Pye, who has done so much for the community. And um, yeah, he wants to get involved with the the podcast in the future as well. So that's, that's fantastic. Obviously you john for being there i know it's been difficult for both of us this year to get podcasts out because reality or well surrealism i suppose got in the way this year (laughs) yeah this has been a year unlike any other that's for sure that leaves us with the usual things to say which is take care stay safe and also a merry christmas to you all and may your new year be a heck of a lot better than the current year Thanks for listening, and we'll, we'll be talking to you again in the new year. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Ho, 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 toodles. Ho, ho.